Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. I'm Andy Parsons, and welcome to the August edition of the Slacktivist Action Group podcast. The politicians are off on their holidays, and so, of course, are we. So here is our bank holiday special, a look back at the last jaw-dropping nine months in politics, a very convenient time span to reflect back on, as that is the amount of time the Slacktivist Action Group podcast has been running, or at least ambling along before having a bit of a sit-down. Back in November of last year, David Cameron was riding high after the first Conservative majority for 23 years, planning to call a referendum on British membership of the EU at some stage, which he would then win comfortably before heading off to a triumphant retirement in 2019 with the economy back on track and his anointed successor, George Osborne, safely at the reins of a guaranteed Conservative 2020 election victory. Oh, how little we knew. Back then, the most pressing thing for the government was to plough ahead with some trade union punishment legislation. Francis O'Grady, the TUC General Secretary, came along to talk to the Slacktivist Action Group and I was invited along to the trade union rally. Here's how I got on. Some of the trade union legislation that the trade union rally was about, the unions were going to have to let the government know if they wanted to use Facebook and Twitter and they would have to let them know two weeks in advance. And I had to make a three-minute little speech, so I stood up and I said, well, if the unions are going to have to let the government know that they're using Facebook and Twitter, I said to the trade union rally, why don't we all let the government, and particularly Sergeant Javid, the man who's putting through the legislation for the government, the business secretary, why don't we let him know that we're all using Facebook and Twitter? And I said, we can let him know right now on Twitter by contacting him at Sajid Javid. And we can also contact him right now on Facebook forward slash Sajid Javid Bromsgrove. But I said, if he's interested in whether we're using Facebook and Twitter, he might also be interested in whether we're using email. So I said... Why don't we all email him right now and we can do that at sergeant.jarvid.mp at parliament.uk. And I said there are six million union members, so if everybody emails Sergeant Jarvid, we crash the system. <laughs> and I said if he's interested in the emails, he may be interested in whether we're using phone or not. <laughs> So I said, why don't we all phone Sajid Javid at his constituency office and that number, for those of you who are interested, 01527 872135. But I said, if they expect all union officials to now wear an armband, I said, why don't we all wear an armband? And then when they say, well, who is the union official? We can say, we all are. And when they say, and what's your name? We go... Spartacus. <laughs> and when they maybe arrest us and when they maybe take us to a police station and when they maybe say you've only got one phone call, we all know who we're going to call, don't we? <laughs> now, I don't know how many people got in contact with Sergeant Javid, but the very next day, Sergeant Javid announced that they were scrapping the proposals <laughs> for Facebook and Twitter <laughs> in the TU legislation. Slacktivism can work. Also, at the back end of last year, the thing that was most occupying Theresa May's mind was the psychoactive drugs law, which eventually hit the statute books in spring of this year. Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk, came along to discuss the bill. This bill is basically a response to legal highs. It 
quite a surprise in some ways that it's going through Parliament. Uh, I believe given that uh, it, it's been tried in Ireland, hasn't worked particularly mm -hmm. well, no two scientists agree exactly what psychoactive actually constitutes. Somebody getting excited by the whole idea. <laughs> they mentioned legal highs and the pint glass has gone over straight away. Huh? But uh, could include, they were saying, possibly include nutmeg, <laughs> incense, or a bunch of flowers. So, uh, interflora in a bit of trouble, Ian. Is that mm. basically what we're saying? I mean, it almost certainly includes all of those things. If you were to take it technically, yeah. they don't really want to take it technically. What they want to do is they basically want to stay one stay, one sort of step ahead of all the, of the chemists. Chemists have this very clever thing. As soon as you ban a drug, they'll just slightly tweak the molecular structure of it. That way it's legal again and off we go. So the government wants to stop that. Its way of doing that is to just say, we ban all things which change your head. And, of course, anything changes your head. I mean, a song can change your head. Food, if it reminds you of your mum's cooking, that can change your head. So there's an exception for food and for drink. Yeah. There's an exception for alcohol, because, you know, we all like doing that. There's an exception for cigarettes. Today, they put in a new exception, which is for poppers. Yeah. The reason they did that is because there's a potential sort of public health risk. Lots of gay people use poppers, and if you take it away from them, it actually increases the chances that they're going to get AIDS or HIV through sex. Yeah. So that has been added to it now. But the rest of the time, anything that changes your head in any way is about to be made illegal. The exception that I liked was the, they made an exception. Um, tea had to be an exception, apparently, because mm. that, that, that could, we, could, we could have a legal high with tea otherwise. Right? Um, but... Uh, Homeopathic remedies. They said, oh, we'll, we'll exempt those. You can get an effect from those. But the, the irony, of course, being that, you know, you won't get any effect from homeopathic remedies whatsoever. <laughs> it's water. We've a hint of water, isn't it? So there was no need for that particular exemption. Yeah, they got away with that one. They did write a letter to the churches, actually, on incense. So incense, they said, well, look, we're not going to go for you guys because you're not smelling it directly out of some sort of receptacle, which it's not, it doesn't even figure in the bill. And secondly, they said, you're not using it for its psychoactive effects. Now, the only good thing that could happen with this legislation is that it goes through and we have a court case to decide once and for all why the church is using incense. Because it looks like probably they do rather like the psychoactive effect that incense has. Yeah. Well, it's only, I mean, I wasn't aware that, that nutmeg could be psycho, psychoactive, I'll be honest with you. If you were at a party and somebody passed you a bit of nutmeg, it would come as something of a surprise. But I, I should be tucking into my eggnog a little keener than I was previously. Now, no, no, no. But the bloke who was presenting this bill, it, the, it, it was a, it, it made sort of something of a mess of it in the sense that it seems unclear as to exactly where it's going. The, it looks like the purchase of legal highs that are imported will be illegal, but purchase, if you actually get them in this country, could be okay. Various sort of anomalies like that kicking around in the bill. Yeah, but even that, we had to guess that bit. Because he goes into the Commons Chamber, the guy, the Home Office Minister, policing minister, who's in charge of the bill. Mike, Mike Penning, Conservative Hemel Hempstead, for those who are right. of, of that interested. Disturbingly accurate knowledge of they, the government well, front that you have. So he goes in, he doesn't know what on earth he's doing. He starts saying, the idea behind this bill is you don't criminalise possession, you just criminalise supply. He starts saying, well, actually, we're going to criminalise the people that are buying the drug if they're buying it at any point. He, go, he does this for about half an hour until eventually they stop him. You know, one of his own sort of MP colleagues sort of says, well, just to, just to be, make it very clear to the minister, when he says that, does he actually mean, in fact, that that is not true at all? And so he just sort of gave in. But the actual bloke in charge of the bill doesn't have any idea who he's trying to criminalise. That's why he's passing a bill that cannot define what it is that it is trying to make illegal. So, like, these guys are just they're completely off the plot. And Really, it comes from this kind of hysterical response that we have to drugs. Where drugs, years ago, there's, that we lost any connection between the way the legislation works and actually the problem that it's trying to address. So the only way that you can address, for instance, cannabis. I mean, it's been illegal for nearly 90 years now. And I don't know whether you've walked around, but it doesn't seem to be going anywhere fast. This is a 90, nearly 100 years of policy failure that we've got on this. So the only way you can still believe in a war on drugs is if you've become completely disconnected from reality. And that's exactly what the cycle substances build <laughs> All this was going on whilst Jeremy Hunt was picking a fight with junior doctors. A fight that whilst everything else seems to have changed, this keeps on going. A fight that Jeremy Hunt thought had covered him in so much glory, he had a chance to go for Prime Minister. Jeremy Hunt accused the BMA of being radicals who didn't truly represent junior doctors. The BMA then accepted an improved offer and the junior doctors rejected it. With such laser-guided perception... Perhaps it is Jeremy Hunt who needs to do a little more weekend overtime. In February, the Slacktivist Action Group decided to attend the Junior Doctors' March. 
I did go on the doctor's march, because it's very difficult to get to see a doctor these days, isn't it? <laughs> there were bloody hundreds of them there, ladies and gentlemen. And since then, Jeremy Hunt has imposed this contract on the junior doctors because he said he was worried that there was 20% more chance of you dying from a stroke in hospitals at the weekend. Now, the medical establishment have rubbished those claims, saying that the main reason that it's 20% more likely for you to die from a stroke at the weekend is it actually tends to be only the most serious cases of stroke get admitted at the weekend. Some people don't even know they're having a stroke. So for those people, right, they tend, if they're not sure, to wait until the Monday, because if you're not sure if you're having a stroke, you tend to wait until the Monday so as you can take a day off work. Yeah. <laughs> and you're certainly more likely to wait until the Monday now if you've heard from Jeremy Hunt that you're 20% more likely to die if, in fact, you go into hospital. <laughs> but it's not just that, is it? The junior doctors, they're nervous the way that health service is heading. This idea that private providers can provide things more cheaply. But the thing is, isn't it? It's not worked out for the rails like that, has it? The trains, we subsidise them four times as much now, although we no longer own them, when we did, in fact, own them. Yeah, so I think that maybe in a few years' time we might be quite cross. Instead of an ambulance turning up to take us to hospital, we find there's a replacement ambulance service. <laughs> and we open the door to find two blokes in jogging outfits with a stretcher, the 118-118 ambulance service. <laughs> And now we've got Virgin, haven't we? Getting involved with various GB clinics. Virgin trains have had so much public money, it shouldn't be called Virgin, it should be called Slack. <laughs> and when they trot out, don't they? They trot out all who are Britain's best-known businessmen. They often trot out, don't they? Alan Sugar, Richard Branson, Philip Green. Now, Amstrad was disappointing. Virgin trains are disappointing. Top man is disappointing. If you'd followed our three best-known businessmen, you could quite easily be using a computer that didn't work on a train going nowhere, looking like a prize arsehole. <laughs> it was around this time that Margaret Hodge MP came along to talk to the Slacktivist Action Group about tax avoidance, alongside Philip Collins from The Times and Shappy Corsandi, a chat that proved very timely, given David Cameron's denial and then retraction that he had benefited from any tax havens. So, Margaret, you were the chair of the Public Accounts Committee, the scourge of big business. We've just had Google in the news very much so. Um, for those of you who may have seen that Google uh, have been a derisory amount of tax, I believe it was described as over the last 10 years they've been made. It can be quite good fun to go on Google, put in Google Tax Avoidance UK and watch it incriminate itself. <laughs> But what did you make of it, Margaret? Uh, I thought it was a derisory settlement. We interviewed Google. We interviewed them twice on the Public Accounts Committee. The first time that we interviewed that guy, Matt Britton, who was very laid back, without a tie, really self-confident, um, he basically said to us, of course, we avoid tax. That's our business model. Um, the second time we interviewed him, I think he so outraged people that the second time we interviewed him, we had um, a huge number of whistleblowers who told us about what Google do. Google uh, say that they don't sell in the UK. They sell into the UK. And because of that, they don't pay tax in the UK. They've got just a very small um, bunch of people here in the UK who are supposed to help them. What the whistleblowers showed us, we had two fantastic whistleblowers. One had worked for Google for five years. And when he left Google, he downloaded absolutely everything that had been his job for the first five years. And he showed us these sales plans selling in the UK. He showed us invoices they'd invoiced in the UK. He showed us the marketing strategies. He showed us the lot. And it was absolutely clear from the evidence he gave us that they're selling in the UK. The other whistleblower that we used was a guy who was still working for the Google when he came to see me. And he brought with me his wage slips. And less than 50% of his earnings were his uh, monthly weight salary. The rest, more than 50%, were the commission he got. And he got a commission on sales. So armed with that, we interviewed Google. I think we proved, and I still to this day think, that they, their model that they claim they have, that they don't sell in the UK, is 
not true. And what I just don't understand is why on earth HMRC and the government don't actually take them to court to prove that it's wrong. On the actual settlement, if I just may have been, 130 million quid, Eric Schmidt, who is the chairman of Google, that 130 million quid was the tax that they thought they ought to pay the UK for uh, 10 years' worth of money. They've made billions out of us here in the UK from the advertising. Eric Schmidt, the guy who runs Google in America, in five years paid himself £176 million. So in five years, he earned more than Google paid in tax to the UK. And the, we're their second biggest market. The intake of breath there from the Slacktivist Action Group, they're horrified, <laughs> absolutely horrified. They'll well, be on Yahoo or Laycox yeah, that's tomorrow. The problem. <laughs> Firefox, they're off to Firefox. <laughs> exactly. But no, the, we'd all love to negotiate our taxes, wouldn't we? That's, you know, they're supposed to be the law, aren't they, HMRC? You're not supposed to... If you, if you got stopped by a police officer and they asked to put your hands in the air, you wouldn't go, well, how about one finger? Maybe two fingers and an elbow. <laughs> You know. It's outrageous. Yeah. Well, you... Amazon, can I just tell the Amazon? Yeah, certainly, yeah. Amazon was quite funny. I never watched myself on telly, but I think the Amazon tip was quite funny. You should, you look magnificent. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon, I used to buy stuff on Amazon. I don't anymore. But when you buy, I hope none of you do here. If you do, stop buying from Amazon. Um, Amazon, you get from them emails. And all over, all over, over the email is amazon.co.uk. I read it five times on the email they sent me. And then when you buy something, it gets sent to you from a warehouse probably outside Slough. Uh, and it comes in a Royal Mail van. And it comes with stamps with the Queen's head on it. And what are they telling you? They're telling you they're not selling in the UK, they're selling you all this stuff from Luxembourg. It really does take the biscuit. And um, again, when, when we have confronted them with that, they've just, all they've got is the server in Luxembourg. That's all they've got. So uh, when you finally, the invoice comes to you from the UK somewhere. The worst thing with them is they again make billions out of all of us selling to goods here. And the year that we looked at them, which was 2011, 2012, they paid something like 2.4 million pounds in corporation tax. They got from the UK government 2.5 million pounds in a regional grant to build one of their warehouses, where they employ people on terrible conditions. This moves us on to the, the big four, all of the, uh, the consultancy companies. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> not, not the big four, but the... You know, we basically, we employ these people to help us frame tax legislation, and then at the same time, they're then inviting private companies to come and look at the legislation they just framed and showing them where the loopholes are. It's absolute madness. If there's loopholes, they should be tightening the loopholes rather than going, hey, look at what we've just done. Yeah, there's gaps all over this. There are. Uh, we interviewed the big four. That's PwC, KPMG, Ernst & Young, and I've forgotten the Deloitte, last one. Deloitte, is it? Deloitte, Deloitte. We interviewed the big four. They make... Pub quiz. They, <laughs> they make £2 billion a year. They make £2 billion a year from giving tax advice. And there's all sorts of terrible things about them. But the worst was this guy from KPMG who had gone into the government to write the technical rules, this is what it was explained to me, to support the legislation, because of course, although I'm an MP, I haven't a clue when we pass this legislation what it actually means. He, so he'd come along and written the te technical rules. And it was a, it was a, it was a tax. Check hands on. But the, it was a thing called patent box tax relief. And this tax relief is supposed to encourage people who have new inventions, new patents to trans to turn them into um, turn them into economic activity, real businesses with real jobs and real growth. He wrote this stuff. He spent 18 months in HMRC writing the legislation. The moment he leaves, he goes back to KPMG and they produce a brochure with him as the figurehead saying, patent box, what's in it for you? And it became a massive avoidance scheme, so bad that both the European Community and uh, the European Union and OECD are now shutting it down. And the worst of the, all these tax reliefs are terrible because every tax relief becomes an opportunity for tax avoidance. And the worst for me was actually a story that Phil's paper brought to me, which was around charitable tax relief. So we all tick the box on gift aid. We all think we're doing good. But there was this one guy who ran 
a, a business called NT Advisors. Come on, everybody. NT, <coughs> no tax. No tax advisors. And he ran it from a... Um, I'm looking at the National Trust even differently <laughs> now. <laughs> he ran it from a tax haven. And he put something like... He was the sole trustee of this trust, run from a, a, run from a tax haven. He put about 176 million quid through this charity. A lot of money. He gave one grant for £15,000 to one youth project. He claimed... 46 million in charitable aid tax relief. I, I want you to know, Margaret, that I pay my tax. Good. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, thank you very much. <laughs> I did have a problem, though, because I was trying to pay it by debit card, right? So, and, <laughs> and it's too one, much. Well, no, they, they said, it's Mr. Parsons, you can't pay it by debit card, they said, because there's a limits in place to prevent fraud. And I said, well, obviously, you, we know it's not fraud because we spent the last five minutes verifying I am who I say I am, right? And obviously, you don't think it's fraud, do you? Because you keep referring to me as Mr. Parsons. <laughs> but also, in the whole history of fraud, has anybody tried to defraud anybody else by paying their frickin' tax bill for them? <laughs> Philip Collins, a former speechwriter to Tony Blair, was himself reporting back on the difficulties of the Labour Party. What, what do you make of, of the current Labour situation? Well, it's going very well, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's going absolutely swimmingly. I think um, to be about 27% in the polls was pretty much what they were aiming for. Well, um, it's probably the summit there. Jeremy ambition. Corbyn, obviously, very popular with, with the new members. He's doubled yeah. the membership. But personal popularity, the lowest of any Labour leader ever, minus 39. And yeah. a popularity figure in the minuses, it's never good, is it? No. it? It seems that almost like imaginary people think you're shit as well. Yeah, yeah. It's... It's the lowest there's ever, there's, there's ever been on record, and it's in, inconceivable that you can come back from there and be Prime Minister. It just simply can't happen. But he is very popular with the members. That's is true. Is he popular out that, here? That's definitely true. Is he popular? Um, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that they're, they're a sample audience, this yeah. lot. <laughs> but that's the point, actually, about the members, because they're not a sample audience either. No. You can, there are 400,000 people in the country who still think Elvis is alive. And if you gather them all together... <laughs> I'm really sorry to break it to you. And he doesn't pay his tax either, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I was, I'm a, one of my first days in politics, my, my boss at the time, Frank Fields, the only funny thing he ever told me, he said to me then, I don't know why he told me, but the first thing he said to me when we met, he said, um, I've got a really interesting thing for you. He said to me, and I still never worked out why he told me this, he said, if the number of Elvis impersonators in the world increases over the next 20 years at the same rate as it increased over the last 20 years, then one in four of the world's population will be an Elvis impersonator. <laughs> he left it at that. He never, explained. Uh -huh. <laughs> he never explained why it was significant, but, but I've always remembered it. Um, but there's 387,000 people. It's 0.3% of the electorate. It's a tiny group of people. And if you're all like-minded, you can reinforce each other with the idea this is a mass movement, but it's not. It's just an internal membership. And it's therefore an illusion that therefore it's, you're just going to translate into, into electoral victory. You're not. And most of them, a lot of the new Labour members, that's not what they joined for. No. They're not bothered by the analysis that says you're not going to win the election because that's not what they're doing. What they're doing is, is expressing something about themselves, which is that we believe this sincerely, and they do, and this man embodies what we think, and we prefer that to the compromise that you inevitably get lost in, in trying to win in government and then being in government. So they, they are living a purer form of politics. Um, I represent Barking and Dagenham, which is one of the poorest places in the country, with the highest unemployment, with desperate need for decent homes at a price people can afford, with a real concentration of people who are uh, being hit by the bedroom tax and are being hit by the benefit cuts with absolutely every ruddy problem in the land that you can think of. And what really absolutely riles me is that the members of the Labour Party don't give a toss about the people embarking in Dagenham. They need a Labour government. Whatever Labour does, it'll be better than what the current Tory government is doing to them. And to have people self-indulgently uh, ensuring that we won't get a Labour government in 2020, 2025, and, and, and thereafter until we pull our act together is just a total betrayal of the people I represent in Barking. Well, you know, obviously 
they are, they are hopeful, the, yeah. the, the Corbynites, that they will. I mean, and they've got some nice ideas, haven't they? they you know, well, it, I mean, the whole Falklands, idea about... Falklands, pro- pro- really, matters to, Falklands yeah. really matters to the people of Barking Dagnum? Well, I, I appear to be de- de- defending things that I, I don't really know that much about. But, um, <laughs> but I'm willing to give it a go, ladies and gentlemen, for the Slacktivist Action Group. Go on, what, but, what are the nice it, ideas? Well, I mean, the, the Prime Minister's question is this idea that, you know, too macho, you shouldn't be Downton Abbey meets CBeebies. That's the, the you know... It, it should be more nuanced than that. It's a nice idea when it's he was nice actually idea. suggesting yeah. questions from people that, that sent them in. The only trouble is now that he's kept on doing it, the slight worry is that he's only asking for more questions from the public because yeah. he can't actually think of them himself. That's the, you know... Yeah. And you, once you've had a question answered by, you know, you say, oh, this one's from Amy from Swindon, yeah. and they, they then come back. What you really want to know is what Amy from Swindon thought of Cameron's exactly, answer, because exactly. she asked such a good question. Precisely. It's too easy for, for Cameron, this. It's so easy. It's essentially to say, would the Prime Minister like to say anything about housing? And the Prime Minister, when you've been Prime Minister for a long time, you know a lot. You're really well briefed. And Cameron just sails through. It's really easy, because the tough thing comes in the follow-up questions. Mm. And that's the skill of being in that gladiatorial conquest. And Cobin's no good at it. But why should he be good at it? Because he's never been in politics all his life. He's been in protest. He's, you do not find somebody languishing on the back benches for 30 years who turns out to be a totally unbidden genius. It's totally inconceivable. And you've just supposed that someone who's been in the fourth team for, for ages suddenly can play for Aston Villa and get them up the league table. It's a nonsense. <laughs> he, you can't. He did, get, he did get rattled, though, Cameron last week, so much so that he said, you know, well, I'll tell you what my mother would say. Go and get yourself a proper suit, do your tie-up, and go and sing the national yeah. anthem. And the thing was, what was he, well, he was saying, though, wasn't he? He was saying that's what his mother, yeah. that's what his mother thought, but it was obviously what Cameron thought himself. He was he turned out to be this sort of yeah. horrible traditionalist well, and you be thinking, well, you might as well have continued, you know, well, why don't you just stand up straight as well? Look at me when I'm talking to you. And if you think anybody's going to trust you wearing a beard, you think again. Yeah, yeah. All of which probably goes down well. But the other thing about Prime Minister's questions is that nobody's watching. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. And so reading out emails from Lucy in Swindon, it's immaterial. The things that matter really are how do people look on your party and think, are you going to run the economy okay? Or are you, as a potential prime minister, someone who I could place my trust in? And on both those questions, which have predicted election victories every single time there's ever been an election, Corbyn is so far behind the Conservatives, it's embarrassing. But the, the reason they have a go at you is the, the idea that the media is against yeah. Corbyn. And, you know, well, certainly... I, well, I'm not. No. But he, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like you are. Well, I'm allowed to be. <laughs> but he, he has been described as the most dangerous man in Britain by the right-wing tabloids. Yeah, and well, you look rubbish. at him and you think, you know, he's this pensioner, yeah. vegan, pacifist, atheist, cyclist. The most dangerous <laughs> man in yeah. Britain. He's in trouble if there's a lorry turning left and he hasn't yeah. had his vitamin B12 supplement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
as well as backing down on elements of the trade union bill, David Cameron's government then backed down on tax credits, disabled benefits, academy schools, fox hunting, Saudi Arabian prisons contract, measurement of child poverty statistics, the housing bill, Sunday trading, the list goes on and on. David Cameron liked to say this is because the Conservatives were listening, but apparently only after they had made the decision to begin with. All this from David Cameron to try and make sure that nothing got in the way of him winning the EU referendum. Oh well, at least he's got a bit of cash that his father had stashed away in a tax haven. In the run-up to the referendum, we had Damien Green, MP, a Remainer, talking to the Slacktivist Action Group, all of us little knowing that after David Cameron's demise, Damien would become the new Work and Pensions Secretary of State. One of the reasons for the referendum was to, in some ways, heal the rift, was it not, over Europe in the Conservative Party. It's going well. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it's going particularly well at the moment. Obviously, Boris was there, sort of saying that uh, Obama came over, didn't he? And said, oh, we, we should stay in the EU. And then Boris said... I'm not racist, but one of the reasons he said (laughs) that Obama doesn't like Britain was that he was part Kenyan. Whereas, of course, Boris himself uh, only part British, wasn't he? He was actually born in America, named after a Russian, looks like a Swedish person who's eaten another Swedish person. (laughs) (laughs) And I think... And Boris is is Turkish, isn't he? Um, He does have some Turkish ancestry, yes. yes. But, I mean, the the whole point is that... um, Particularly, the, the Leave campaign have said for years that um, we're not really like Europeans. We should we should listen to the Anglosphere. This is a, the phrase they've created, meaning basically other people who speak English and mostly play cricket, as it happens. Yeah, we, our friends are Australia and New Zealand uh, and the United States and and Canada and people like that. Hilariously, the leaders of every one of those countries have said, for God's sake, please stay in the EU. So those people who the Leave campaign have said, these are our traditional friends, these are ones we should stick by, have all said, stick with the EU. Is that because they're terrified of us restarting empire if we leave the EU and well, don't I, want us back? I, I think, I think we're, we're back to my Nigel Farage uh, thought here. That There are certainly people who you know, feel that you know, let's, let's bring back the 19th century. But uh, I think most of the, the, the Leave campaign are you know, just wrong and are a bit confused. We also had Mary Cray MP talking Brexit alongside Marcus Brigstock. The problem we've got is, in the in-camp, the, the, the Remain camp, you know, we don't even know what we call ourselves, is that we're dealing with, with a million varieties of outers. So you've got the guys in the green ties, grassroots out, go, handy. They've waited all of their adult life for this, Andy. That's how tragic they are. While the rest of us were getting on with clickbait on Twitter, or not doing our DIY, or, you know, mocking our friends of a friend's father. Yes. Um, they were waiting for this moment, and so they're wired up and ready to go, but and that's the problem. David Cameron sort of had the referendum, didn't he, to heal the rift in, in, in the Conservative Party, but it's not healed it at it's all. It's gone well, hasn't it's, it? it? That healing. It's wider than ever. <laughs> so it, it's be- like basically trying to heal a rift with your partner by talking about your Divorce. ex... and then <laughs> And getting... And, and, and then deciding to have a, a vote as to whether they are any good or not, isn't it? <laughs> so, basically, David Cameron is having this referendum he didn't want it. The Green Tie Brigade forced him into it, which is the hard right of the Conservative Party. And what they're doing now is trying to sucker the British people. And this is where I get really annoyed. Because they go, well, if we didn't have to pay into the EU, we could save the NHS. If we didn't pay into the EU, we could have great schools, we could have great hospitals, we could have um, more police on the beat. And you go, hang on a minute, you're the hard right of the Conservative Party. You take every opportunity that you can to shrink the size of the state. Pick around with the junior doctors, why don't you? Forced academisation of all um, primary schools, all schools in the country, why don't you? So don't, get, don't think I'm that stupid. And actually, it's been reassuring, because I debated with John Redwood last week in um, London Metropolitan University, and we were there. And John Redwood stood up. And he's one of the ones, although he doesn't wear the tie very sensibly, because <coughs> the tie is like a badge that, you know, says, I've been waiting for this all my life and I haven't done anything else. Yeah. And uh, John Redwood got up and said, we can end austerity. We can end... And I was just having a little Wikipedia look at John Redwood. I thought, it's really good to have the phone in your pocket. And uh, in it, I discovered that in 1995, when he was Secretary of State for Wales, he gave £100 million of his Welsh budget 
back to the Treasury because he didn't want to spend it on schools, on hospitals, and on police in Wales. And all, I don't know if all learning a... the national anthem, if oh, I remember yes. right. Yeah, no, no, that was yeah. He was he was famous for that as well. And there were, what was really reassuring was there were young people in the audience there, and they were laughing at him. And they put their hands up and they go, John, just saying. Hashtag, you voted for the bedroom tax. Hashtag, loser. You know, I mean, they didn't quite put it like that, but they were laughing at him. And I thought actually this is really good. And more people need to see more of John Redwood. They need to hear more of Boris Johnson saying, Obama, ah, whatevs. He's a, bit, he's a bit Kenyan, isn't he? You know, it's like Boris Johnson, the brackets, the Tory mayor of London, who's put your fares up by over 17% closed brackets, um, vote Khan on uh, May the 5th, closed brackets again. Nicely done, nicely done. <laughs> See how I did that? In. <laughs> Sorry, Sadiq, I'm not at your phone bank tonight. Um, if, any, if someone could tweet that at Sadiq Khan, that'd be really helpful. Um, and, um, God, I've lost my thread. Anyway, well, yes, jo- Boris Johnson has now joined the Tea Party's birther movement and wants to see Barack Obama's birth certificate to prove that he has the right to comment on one of his closest transatlantic allies' positions on the in-out referendum. Well, that, that's it. When you come to the, this idea of balance, the BBC feel they need to have somebody from the, the Remain and somebody from the Out Camp, and then you look at all of the people who are Remain, and it's like the TUC, three major unions, IMF, CBI, largely all of the Labour, Lib Dems, SNP parties, the four living Prime Ministers, and the President of the United States. And all the dead ones. Yeah, possibly. (laughs) And then you've got Boris Johnson, Nigel Farage, John Redwood and Chris Grayling. Don't forget Marine Le Pen. They're trying to stop Marine Le Pen coming, which is very interesting, (laughs) trying to put an order on her to not come against freedom of movement. You know, that's the well, they, they don't. They don't want people coming over here, do they? That's it. Yeah. That's, it. that's what it is. <laughs> Telling us what to do. But it'll be quite, you know, be quite good rather than having one from one and one from the other is a representative of all those people who are for staying and a representative of all the ones who want to leave. And it'll yeah, become much more obvious. Your French right-wing fascist. I think we need to hear a bit more from them. You know, because actually, if you look at the people who want us to leave, who is it? Your French right-wing politician, National Front. Your Vladimir Putin... <clears throat> it's all gone so well with capturing Ukraine. That, 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 that's the most elegant way I've ever heard of somebody <laughs> slagging off Vladimir Putin. You Vladimir never know Putin. who's in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't live tweet that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a cycle in now. Well, it's they, they were vulnerable. describing the Remain campaign as Project Fear, weren't they? And then what was it Michael Gove said last week? He said, if you were remaining in, in the EU, it was like being a hostage locked in the boot of a car. What, what could be more scary than that particular image? Yeah. Unless that he'd added, I was in there with you. <laughs> Absolutely. But also, what I love about the uh, Leave campaign is they picture this rosy picture, which is Norwegian. We can be, you know, trendy, be liberal, have really well-funded public services. So, you know, OK, let's, let's park that fantasy for a moment under the Tories. And then they've gone, oh, and then someone's gone, oh, oh hang on a minute, Norway pay 80% of what we pay into the EU budget and they still have to accept free movement of people. Oh, and they go, oh, God, we don't want that. We don't want to pay into the budget because then that's an argument gone. And we don't want free movement of people because that's another argument gone. I know. Let's be like Albania. (laughs) Now, there's nothing wrong with Albania, right? I've not been there. I'm going there soon and I've heard it's a great country and it's, you know, it's it's had its problems. Um, But I'm not sure that we want to model ourselves on a country that's got, I don't know, 23% unemployment and is desperately trying to sort of come into the EU, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. So this, this kind of free trade area, what, what they're not telling us is we'd have to renegotiate the trade deals, not just with the 27 EU countries, but with all of the other countries like Albania. And when they talk about the Commonwealth, we've got 52 countries in the Commonwealth. And Churchill talked about these three majestic circles. You know, we've got our relationship with the United States, with the Commonwealth and with Europe. But we trade more with Ireland than we do with all 52 countries of the Commonwealth. So don't tell me... And, you know, someone said, well, why is that? You know, why? Why aren't we talking to our Commonwealth? It's like, generally, they're quite poor. We no, nothing to do with poor. us, though. We didn't yeah. do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very Not important people realise we were there to help. 
Yeah. And yeah. we did what we could, and the fact that we left in a hurry, with their leaving very straight borders... They were doing brilliantly, and when we left, it all went... It all went horribly, horribly wrong. We, we did them the good favour of drawing really neat, straight borders for them to make sense of, and what did they do? Skirmishes. So, what I've also noticed is that the Eurosceptics also tend to be climate sceptics, and... Um, That's, sorry to butt in, yeah. that... A particular thing uh, where UKIP is concerned, that is a big part of the tail that wags that that particular yeah. dog. Uh, uh, Nigel Farage's politics were galvanised at the point. I mean, where he started to mean it was when someone told him he couldn't smoke in pubs anymore. He is no, he's my he's he's from the same background as me. I fucking grew up with these people, right? <laughs> no, he's privately educated posh boy. Entitlement is everything. When people say no, they mean later. So when people say to Nigel Farage, no, or you have to change something about the way that you live, or you're going to have to be able to see uh, a wind turbine, which is like an emblem of them having lost the argument. That's why they hate them so much. Uh, That tail wags the UKIP dog because they are right-wing libertarians or the toddlers of politics. Uh, No, they just... It's it's really simple. They just don't know how to share. And climate change is, is absolutely key for the UKIP mindset, because mm. it, it's so... It's such a bit... Sorry, I've, I've yeah. banged on. Bang, I've bang on, I think, is the past. But tense. that's also... Well, you, you thought you were entitled to bang on because of your education. Yeah. I, knew, <laughs> I knew I was. I'm still absolutely reeling from the fact that I stopped at all. <laughs> yeah, you self-censored. But I know, keep there. talking long enough, I'll you be see, made mayor. Uh... Then, on June the 23rd, we had the vote itself. And four days later, David Davis came along to talk to the Slacktivist Action Group, all of us little knowing that in two weeks' time, he will be made Secretary of State for Brexit. I mean, there's going to be a negotiation. It's going to take two, three years. Uh, and uh, uh, at the end of it, uh, we will hopefully have a deal with them on the terms we want. But, you know, it's going to be three years away. I think we'll, we'll get managed migration. There won't be no immigration. You have to be an idiot to think you have no immigration. Um, and I'm not talking about Boris there. And, you know, we'll have an arrangement whereby we can sell to them and they can sell to us. They want to sell to us as much as we want to sell to them. So uh, it's a strong position to negotiate from. So, obviously, there were lies on both sides. Yeah. I mean, in David Cameron said he promised us that if there was a vote leave, he would stay as long as he could, and then as soon as there's a vote leave, he left straight away. <laughs> even, even when he, he was pissing off, he couldn't even tell the truth, could he? So... Do you have some sympathy for him, or no, listen, as a man listen, who, who, listen. who defeated you in the leadership election? Count, count, count yourself lucky he was lying. He promised you World War Three today. You know, you know, come on. You know. Well, there, there was that threat. I mean, yeah. there was there was a bit on both sides, wasn't there? Yeah. As, to, as to what, but the Turkey thing particularly got people wound up. This idea that Turkey was going to be joining the EU. There's no way that, that Turkey's joining, is it? There's 35 policy areas that they apparently have to talk to the EU about. So far, they've agreed one, one out of 35, in 10 years of talking. Now, Katie Price has a polo horse. (laughs) It'll be like saying she's joining the aristocracy. (laughs) 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 When you were asked, and in the lead-up, you had these things, did you not feel that there could have been more genuine talking from the Leave side? Oh, I think there could have been more genuine talking from both sides. I mean, take Turkey. Turkey's quite a good example. On the one hand, David Cameron said, well, I will veto Turkey forever. If you actually look at what he said six weeks ago in the European Union, it was Britain supports Turkey's rapid accession. You know? So on the one hand, you had him doing that, and on the other hand, you're quite right, Leave were, were saying, oh, they're going to join tomorrow, which they weren't. They never were. So you can sense from some members of the audience that people are trying to find ways of maybe not having to go through with this and people are being accused of being sore losers. But obviously Nigel Farage himself, before the thing, said, well, if it's 52-48, there could easily be a second referendum. So, in fact, he was a sore loser before he won. Well, well he, was, he, he, was, he was actually a loser before he won, if you remember, because he conceded at, ten, at one minute past ten. That's right. Remember that? And then he unconceded and then he... Reconceded and then he, he unconceded. Well, again. He's, he's got history on this, hasn't he? Because he, he, he resigned, didn't he, after the election? Then three days later, he was back <laughs> as the leader. Yeah. I was looking forward to him resigning a second time because, let's face it, even Jesus hasn't made it back for a second time. <laughs> <laughs> 
It was a tactic I was hoping to use for the Cameron leadership election, but it didn't work. You know? <laughs> best of three. Best of three. We can do this. Obviously, the referendum, there, there, yeah. there's now this petition. We at the Selectivist Action Group, we quite like a petition, don't we? So up to three million at the moment. There is some allegations of fraud on the petition. The, just a few. Well, I was thinking if it gets up to 17 million, then they've got to at least take it seriously. <laughs> although they may be taking the fraud even more seriously at that point. 17 million, 400,000 and one, it's got to be. <laughs> so if we, if we can get you to, to, to look into your crystal ball, David, yeah. the, um, in terms of how, how do you see it progressing? Does it very much depend on who becomes the leader of the Conservative Party? Um, what, when Boris is elected, yeah. Um, it, uh, <laughs> a little bit. Well, uh, I, the, looked, I looked at the odds today, just before you came on, yeah. and uh, we have Boris and Theresa, supposedly the two front runners. Hmm. but your name is there at 40 to 1, is David. It? Yeah, just after Jacob Rees-Mogg. All right. So, <laughs> but, well, but can you give us the inside line? What, what, what is likely to happen? Well, I mean, firstly, I don't think Theresa will win um, because she's a, re- she's a Remainer, and it's yeah. very unlikely that the Tory party in the country will actually elect a Remainer. They're going to elect somebody who, who believes in the, in the Leave project, if you like. Um, and... Frankly, it doesn't really make much difference which one of them wins. There'll be about six months of preparing the negotiation before we start. That involves going to see the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh Parliament, Welsh Assembly, Northern Ireland Assembly, getting all those sorted out, talking to the CBI, talking to all what you might call the stakeholders, the TUC, uh, working out what their fears and concerns are. Uh, then drafting the, um, the negotiating document, at the same time going around Europe talking to all the others. So that's, the, that's how it'll start, and I reckon it will take the full two years to get the deal because, I mean, I used to negotiate in Europe. I used to do that, as it were, as my job uh, 20 years ago, and nothing ever concludes before the last 10 seconds, you know? The negotiation goes rambles on and rambles on and rambles on, and on the last, in those days... Uh, not now, but in those days, the last day, the Spaniards had been silent for, you know, 12 months of negotiation. Would say, you know, sort of 10 to 12 when the negotiation was about to stop, start, uh, finish, say, oh, uh, we have one issue, you know. And, and they say, what's that? It says, our fishing quota. Can you increase it? And then you get no deal until you increase the Spanish fishing quota. Something like that will happen. So it'll run on for two years. Uh, and I think at the end of it, we will get a, a reasonable deal uh, with good access, good, good access to, uh, to European markets uh, and controlled access on immigration, but not, not, uh, not open-ended access as we have now. And the, the biggest argument, I suspect, will be about whether we pay them anything, because I don't think we'll want to. And so is your feeling that we will be part of the single market is it, or is your feeling that we will <coughs> not a, a, like Norway or you think... Yeah, I mean, the, the, the sort of arguments are, just, just for your audience a second, you've got the single market, um, uh, which involves uh, free access, uh, free movement of peoples, um, which is the Norwegian model. You've got a variant of it, which is the Swiss model, which is loads and loads and loads of treaties, loads and loads of bilateral treaties. And they, they in theory, signed up with free movement of peoples as well, but they've just had a referendum a little while ago, a few months ago, which their people have said, no, we don't want that anymore. So that was, that's a sort of non-free movement model, and we'll be probably nearer to the Swiss model. But basically, yeah, we'll get access. We'll get access to the single market, and, uh, and we'll uh, be able to control our migration numbers. So Boris Johnson is an idiot and Theresa May will not be Prime Minister and we are going to get something near to the Swiss model when it comes to negotiating Brexit. We will see. What will the autumn hold? Well, who knows, but the Slacktivist Action Group will be there. We're at the Soho Theatre on the last Monday of every month, if you fancy seeing it live, and the podcast will be out the day after if we get our act together. In September, the guests are Rich Hall on a possible Trump presidency, Julia Hartley Brewer and Andrea Leadsom's campaign manager, Tim Lawton, MP. In October, we have Russell Howard and Vince Cable. In November, there's Chukar and Munner, MP, the Fleet Street Fox and Henning Vane. And in December, we'll be joined by Dr Sarah Wollaston, MP, and The Guardian's Michael White. The Slacktivist Action Group podcast is free. Still free! So please subscribe. It's just one click on the link that says subscribe. It helps us keep it free, and all it means is that you don't have to do anything at all to get the next episode, so it's the slacktivist way of doing things. Please also do tell your friends about the podcast. Spread the word. You can do all the promotion you like, but the best is always word of mouth. 
People don't trust anything that people say anymore, but for some reason, they trust their friends. So if nothing else, the last nine months in politics have certainly not been dull, and it can be refreshing at times to see commentators not having a clue what's happening either, although it's slightly more disconcerting when it's the government ministers themselves. Theresa May is the new Prime Minister. Let's see what happens. The Conservative leadership contest came down to Theresa May and Andrea Leadsom. Arguably a choice between shooting your own cock off and getting a sawn-off shotgun shoved up your arse and then shooting your own cock off. (laughs) In the end, Andrea Leadsom, she had to drop out, didn't she? Why did she have to drop out? She wanted to manage the top job. In the end, she couldn't even manage her own CV. (laughs) On there, she had financial director, and then a few days later, it was changed, and we had deputy financial director. And as we know, the word deputy makes one hell of a lot of difference. All you've got to do is listen to the lyrics of Bob Marley's I Shot the Sheriff. to know how much difference the word deputy can make. (laughs) And the final nail in the coffin, wasn't it? She said, she said that she was better equipped to be prime minister because she was a parent. But let's remember David Cameron, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair were all parents and they all managed to fuck it up, didn't they? (laughs) Tony Blair still insisting even after the Chilcot report that we live in a much safer world without Saddam Hussein. Now, I'm not sure I didn't prefer the more dangerous world with Saddam Hussein, a world when you could get on a train, see an unattended package, and think, ooh, I think I'll have that. (laughs) Because what was Brexit really? Brexit was a vote, wasn't it? That said 52% of people didn't feel that globalisation was working for them. Now, why was it working? Well, at least part of that is to do with austerity. The tragedy seems to be that now having vote leave, that austerity is to continue for that much longer. Essentially, you could compare Brexit Britain to somebody who'd spent years and years trying to suck their own knob by doing loads of yoga. And then just as they got to the stage where they could just about fit the end of their knob in their mouth, they'd sneezed and bitten the tip off. (laughs) Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.